This is The Ethicist, a podcast from the New York Times Magazine. I'm Amy Bloom, novelist and writer-in-residence at Wesleyan University, and along with my co-hosts, we're going to debate and then answer some of the tricky ethical questions Times Magazine readers send in every week. And let me introduce my co-hosts, Anthony Appiah, professor of philosophy at New York University. Hi, Anthony. Hello, Amy. How are you? And Kenji Yoshino, law professor at New York University. Hi, Kenji. Hi, Amy. Coming up, we'll tackle reader questions about who decides what the quality of life is, taking crime and punishment into your own hands, and can you teach science without believing in it? So here's our first question. Dear ethicists, a close relative is seriously ill with terminal cancer. His doctors here in the U.S. at an established cancer clinic have advised him that there is not much left to do in the way of conventional treatment. Eager for a cure, my relative has now found a cancer clinic in a foreign country that promises alternative treatment during a multi-week stay, essentially advertising that a change in diet and some homeopathic remedies can kill the tumors that chemo and radiation haven't stopped. This relative has asked for the family's help in paying the foreign clinic's hefty fee. I regard the clinic as pure quackery. The treatments they advertise have no proven scientific basis, and I think that they are simply preying on desperate patients in their most vulnerable state. Nonetheless, I could afford to help my dying relative pay for the treatment, and normally wouldn't hesitate to help a relative who needed it. Should I contribute here? Could I ethically withhold my financial help, even if it's what my relative and much of the rest of the family think will help? Does it matter that if I don't pay, my relative will simply draw on other family members' savings and retirement plans? Signed, name withheld. I think you're probably right about the quackery. Let's say you did research about the clinic and it turned out that you were absolutely right. Does that really matter? Your relative is dying. There's no proven or likely scientific cure. And he's found this place where he can stay and eat healthy and experience alternative treatments, which I hope are pleasant and not painful, and which will give him peace of mind, at least for a while he's there. And at the end of the stay at the clinic, he will probably still be dying, and he will either acknowledge that or not. And if he wanted money from the family to go party in Belize or drink vintage port, or hire attractive nurses around the clock? Would you contribute to that? I don't think you have an obligation to make the contribution to this clinic run by quacks, but I would think that love and family harmony and easing a difficult period might incline you to do so since you can afford it. Um, And when he returns from this stay and he is not better, I hope everybody will be kind and you will be not inclined at all towards I told you so. And if he returns in better health, let everybody rejoice. I guess I, I feel that there's a, there's a sort of issue in here that, that is, a bit, is a step back from, from the questions you were raising, Amy, which is that um, I think there's, there's a sort of idea that I certainly have, though I know when I run this by my students, most of them don't have it, <laughs> which is that there's something very important in in human life, something that, as it were, adds to the value of your life, which is being in touch with reality in a certain way, and that 
moments, especially important moments, moments like the period when you're dying, are periods when it's really important not to be out of touch with reality. And if you do love and know somebody, I think you can say to them, look, I'm willing to help you do whatever in the end we decide to do. But I just want you to know that I don't think this is going to work. And I think it's really important to spend these last, this, the last part of your life, however long it is, and let's hope it's as long as possible, um, doing things that are based in reality and not based in a, in a false hope. Yeah, so I um, love that uh, intuition, uh, Anthony. But I wonder if reality isn't overrated here. Um, and Amy, to you, when you say that you're fine with um, the person not giving the money and that that would also be an ethical choice. I also want to push against that because I want to say that the only objection that this person has articulated is to the nature of the treatment. Um, the individual says, you know, you let the letter writer say that you can afford to help and that you would normally help a dying relative. So the only objection here is to the nature of the treatment. So I think that the message that you're sending by saying, I'm not going to contribute to your treatment, is really saying, I'm not going to contribute to your hope. And I think that what is being bought and sold here is is not so much the treatment itself, which at some level the individual himself or herself may know is quackery, right? But, you know, rather just the hope uh, that, you know, life can be sustained for this kind of narrow island of time. I take your point, Kenji. I mean, I th- my, my own suggestion was love, family, harmony, and easing a very difficult period for someone that you're close to should triumph over your understandable objection to the clinic's quackery. Um, but there will also probably be a lot of other needs in the family yes. financially as well. I, w- I would be inclined to say... If this is the thing that matters to you and um, gives you hope, and this is what you have asked us to help you with, I will I will help you with it. And my own objections are really not the point, although I would raise them and then move on. It's perhaps worth stressing that one thing I think we all agree about is that the fact that it's quackery, you shouldn't worry about that. Uh, I mean, that is to say, you shouldn't worry about it in the sense of uh, that you're uh, assisting these people in their in their business of quackery. That seems to be much less important than the question how you help your relative with with his dying. Uh, All I wanted to insist was as a balance, as it were, between the question of the subjective feeling of the relative, which is a very important thing, too. It's not not unimportant whether she has he has hope or whether he feels uh, positive about the last part of his life. I, I don't mean that that doesn't matter. But I just would like to weigh it against the fact that I think, you know, and it's an easy thing to say when you're not dying, but I think um, a good death for an intelligent, thoughtful person, I think involves coming to terms with the truth of the fact that you're dying and then uh, dealing with your relationships uh, in the last chance you have. I, I remember when my, my father was dying, uh, I, I, I was, we were living in a different country, so I arrived, as it were, by his bedside, and he, gave me, he looked into my eyes and he gave me a look, and I knew what it meant. It meant was, look, you want to ask me all kinds of things, I don't want to talk about that right now. Uh, and so I think, you know, if you know somebody, you can tell if you start this sort of conversation whether, whether it's going to go anywhere, and if it isn't going to go anywhere, it's just cruel to persist, I agree. Yeah, and it sounds like a version of the lotus eater argument, right, of turning away from the lotus that you could actually 
you know, bite into the lotus and have a happy kind of death without actually coming to terms with reality. And what you're saying is that, you know, as the fable itself suggests, it is wise to turn away from that because mm-hmm. the reality is, is, is worse but also better. Yes. Um, I will be dying one day. Uh, maybe I'll know it. Maybe I won't. But suppose I do. I'd like to be able to live the last part of my life uh, accepting that I'm dying and dealing with the consequences of that that I have under my control, which is saying goodbye properly, um, rereading Middlemarch. I mean, doing the things that you'd like to do (laughs) one more time. Well, there's a billboard on the uh, on the highway in New York that says uh, the person who is going to live to 150 is already on the planet. So yeah, that's right. You yes. could you could read Middlemarch and then some. You could read <laughs> the Mill on the Floss. But but part of what you're saying is that your wish is to experience your death and go through this period of your life as the person that you are. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I wonder about the first question is. I wonder if the close relative is, in fact, experiencing and handling his imminent death as he is. In other words, this is the kind of person he is. Yes. He does not want to spend a lot of time with his loved ones and read Middlemarch. He wants to go to a foreign country and have a change in diet and some homeopathic remedies away from his family. Yes. Um, and would like and would like them to help pay for it, and <laughs> yes. it makes me think. Well, perhaps that's the kind of person that this relative is. Yes, and what they are aiming for is not um, a different kind of life into death experience, but precisely this one. And that's why I agree with you, Anthony. I think it's worth raising the issue with the relative and then dropping it. All right, everybody, let's dive into the next letter. Dear ethicists, last night I witnessed an assault on a taxi driver by a seemingly inebriated passenger on the Upper West Side. After the passenger jumped out of the cab and kicked it repeatedly, the driver got out of the cab to look at the damage and confront the man. The man suddenly began throwing punches and a legitimate brawl ensued, during which the man yelled things such as, Go back where you came from, and I was born in this country, you weren't. For the record, the driver was born in this country. A small crowd gathered to break up the fight, though it had gone on for quite some time with some serious punches landed. The cab driver, roughed up and practically in tears, called the police to report the assault. When they arrived, I stuck around to defend the cab driver. The police listened but told me they did not need me as an official witness. I wished the cab driver luck and went across the street to watch the rest of the aftermath play out. It should be noted that the passenger, a black man, was claiming that the cab driver would not take him to Harlem, but that he probably would have had he been white. The police did not arrest the man, nor did they appear to do much of anything in the way of even taking information, though I could be wrong. What I have not mentioned is that during the brawl I heard a ring bounce toward me across the street. I assumed it flew off one of the hands while throwing a punch. I picked it up, and after the cab driver called the police, I asked him if the ring was his. He said it belonged to the other man. I asked, somewhat conspiratorially, if he wanted the ring anyway, but he said no. I did not bring it up to the police. When I got home, I looked at the ring, only to find that it was a Cartier wedding band, sold new from $1,100 to $1,600. Today, I found a posting on Craigslist by the passenger seeking his lost ring during a quote-unquote assault in exchange for a reward. So, what do I do? John from Manhattan. 
So this query had an almost novelistic quality for me because <laughs> as I read it, my sympathies shifted quite dramatically. And at first, I was completely on your side. You were a witness who had more information than the police did. Your willingness to stick around and give up your time to share that information is laudable. At the point where the police informed you that your services were not required, uh, my sympathies began to shift, frankly. Uh, I think you should have retired from the scene at that point. Now, there's always a possibility that the police could have or should have done more, but you didn't disclose any particular reason to believe that the police were not doing their job. They had the opportunity to speak with various witnesses. You didn't have that advantage, and you have no idea what transpired in the cab before the altercation began. Then when you begin to discuss the ring, my sympathy, I fear it takes a nosedive. So after you picked up the ring, you should have taken it directly to the police, regardless of whether you thought it belonged to one of the parties, asking the cab driver, quote unquote, (laughs) somewhat conspiratorially, whether he would like to use the ring as leverage over the passenger is unethical behavior, because you're tempting him to engage in private revenge. So as conventionally told, we have the state take over the policing function precisely to break these cycles of personal revenge. And to his credit, the driver refused. But taking the ring home to assess its value continues in the vein in which you started, and now you're setting yourself up as the arbiter of right and wrong in this dispute. So the right thing to do is to take the ring and the Craigslist posting directly, right? do not pass go, do not collect 200 to the police, and to let them sort it out. Uh, You should not contact the driver. You should not contact the passenger. Your role in this drama after you deliver the ring is over. This is the kind of reality TV I would like to watch. (laughs) (laughs) I just, you could just see this. You could just see this. You get to watch the brawl, offer testimony, take sides, conspire to deprive the villain of his wedding ring. Except exactly as Kenji says, you don't have the right to do that. I did wonder if, if um, having seen the posting on the Craigslist, if, if the right thing was to return the ring to the police along with the Craigslist um, listing, or if it would be equally the right thing to return the ring to the passenger. Um, I do see that it's an exchange for a reward. I think taking the reward is probably not a good idea because it's because the reward is there for someone who doesn't know whose it is. It's meant to incentivize supererogatory behavior, behavior above and beyond the norm. If you mm-hmm. know that something belongs to somebody, then it's not really uh, a special, uh, it's not especially good behavior to try and get it back to them. But still, I think once you know that uh, who, uh, how to get hold of the person, I'd be just as happy with your sending it back to the to the to the person it belongs to as the, going by way of the police. Though again, um, this is a case where you are assuming that you understand the full situation, which you which your te- which the temptation of holding onto the ring suggests you think more generally. And I would worry that part of the problem is that you don't actually know everything about what happened. And so even if uh, and it, it were okay, which I don't think it is, but even if it were okay to hold on to the ring of the person that behaved badly, you don't actually know how badly he behaved. He sounds like a nasty person. I, you know, it doesn't sound like someone I'd want to hang out with. But you didn't see the whole story. And if, if anything did go wrong, if there was an assault here, the task of a court would be to figure out 
what the context was and so on. And you don't just have the you don't have the information to do that. So, but I don't see any problem myself in returning it directly to the to the uh, to the person it belongs to if you're if you're sure that that's the situation. Well, maybe that's part of what Kenji was saying, which is that maybe the smarter thing is to just butt out at this point, given that the letter writer seems pretty clear that, as he says, I could be mistaken, and that if you have the ring, maybe the smartest thing, although it's not necessarily more ethical, but maybe it is even a little bit more ethical, is to just bring it to the attention of the police. Say, here's the ring, here's the Craigslist uh, posting, and here you have it. And yeah. to and to get out of the situation with your partial knowledge and leave it um, to the law. Yeah, if we all agree that at the moment when he picked up the ring, that he should have taken it to the police, which I think we do agree, then I, I think that that answers the question of whether it is more ethical to do that, you know, a few days later, or whether to respond to the Craigslist posting yourself, reward or not, right? Because I no, think that... I think you have persuaded both of us. Okay, good. That they're going. At, no, I th- I think you did. I think you persuaded both of us that just as we see that as the pivot in the story, it's it's also um, crucial to the to the better behavior. And it's also we don't know that the person posting at Craigslist not to be too uh, nefarious about this or too skeptical about it. Um, we don't know that the person who posted the Craigslist posting is the right individual to whom the ring should be returned, right? So oh one of the God. things that the police, yes, my mind is, when you are trained oh in law, God. your mind becomes like a sewer. <laughs> it is like a sewer. Or is it, it didn't Miss Marple always say, like, you know, I, I have a mind like a sink, but the sink is actually a very useful object. So. <laughs> if she didn't, she should have. Yes. I like that. All right, on to our last question. I am an instructor at a large state university where we prepare pre-service teachers to enter the field of education. My specialty is science education, and so I teach classes about how to teach science. I host a discussion in my classroom each semester about climate change and science teaching. This semester, as a result of this discussion, about five of my students revealed to the class that they are climate change deniers. One of these students indicated that forcing teachers to teach about climate change was a form of religious persecution. As part of my job, I write recommendation letters for my students. This same student recently asked for a recommendation for her applications to teach in a public elementary school. She is a phenomenal teacher and in many ways an excellent student. However, I am conflicted about writing this letter for a few reasons. First, I assume that because most Americans do not believe climate change is caused by people, that she and others in my class are not the only pre-service teachers in my university or in the country to hold this perspective. However, because climate change is not of special interest to most other instructors of other sections and courses, they do not ask their students to reveal their thinking about this issue. Is it fair that I hesitate with her when other students with similar viewpoints receive letters without hesitation? Second, I set up the discussion in my classroom by establishing that it is intended to be a safe space for students to share their ideas. She may have been willing to share her perspective on climate change because she trusted that I would respect her even if we disagreed. While I do respect her as a person, I question the ethics of recommending a climate change denier to teach in a public school. Third, this student is preparing to be an elementary school teacher, which means that she probably won't be teaching climate science. I have a good relationship with this student, and I'm considering asking to meet with her to discuss my hesitation. Is it ethical to request a meeting about this? Is it ethical to write her a letter considering my hesitations? Sincerely, name withheld. Um, 
So first thing I want to say is that um, since you do have a good relationship with the student, yes, you should certainly talk to here. And here's some of what you need to talk about. Um, first of all, the fact that somebody connects their view about something like uh, anthropogenic uh, climate change with their religion uh, doesn't mean that you have to concede that the claim is off limits for rational discussion. Um, and I find it odd anyway to claim that holding that the climate is affected by human behavior is something that in itself amounts to persecuting uh, someone, since that is a view held by, among other people, the Pope, uh, my friend Jonathan Sachs, the former chief rabbi of England, and the Grand Mufti of Egypt. I checked. The Grand Mufti of Egypt <laughs> believes in anthropogenic climate change. So three of the leading people of three of the major Abrahamic religions, and I'm sure, that, I'm, by the way, that the Dalai Lama believes in it too. So it just seems to me that uh, simply announcing that you will, be treat, you will treat someone as persecuting you if they insist on a point of view that they rationally hold, just announcing that that's religious persecution doesn't make it religious persecution. It's just an invitation, I think, to have a discussion with them about their concept of religious persecution and to make them realize that they can't uh, force people to live in a world where just, as it were, spitting on what you say and saying, hey, I make this religious, uh, means that other people aren't entitled uh, to make arguments against it, discuss it with you uh, once it comes up in the context where it's reasonable that it comes up, and it does reasonably come up in the context of a class about science teaching, and so on. So um, I think you have one thing, your job as a teacher, among other things, I think, in this context, is to get her to see that that's not a uh, reasonable way of thinking about uh, her religious uh, situation. So I think you have to have the conversation before you write the letter, and I don't think it matters very much myself what's going to happen in the conversations between uh, other students and other recommenders. Your job is to write an honest letter of recommendation. If the rest of the world is writing dishonest ones or misguided ones or ones that are based on lack of information, that's their problem. Your problem is that you know something about this person. It's relevant to what she's going to do. Uh, it seems to be perfectly fair to say to her, look... Um, I can write you a letter of recommendation, but if your view is that you're, it's okay for you to teach things that are religiously uh, based uh, without giving a weight to the scientific evidence and without noting what the scientific community uh, thinks about this, including the controversy, if, if you're not willing to do that, I'm going to have to mention that in the letter. I'm going to have to say, to, I think she would be a phenomenal teacher, but I have to tell you that I don't think that she can be relied upon to teach what I believe should be taught uh, in relation to um, certain areas of the sciences. I agree with that, absolutely. I think the part in the question about the safe space was interesting to me, which said we must listen, respect each other, and engage in thoughtful and potentially difficult conversations. I think that's great, but there's nothing about that that would then preclude having a frank conversation with the student and writing a frank letter of recommendation for her if she still wished um, to have the letter written after the discussion um, in which you know the concerns were raised, if she still wants the letter written, then I think you write an ethical letter which is praising her strengths as a teacher and as a student and sharing your concerns about her ability to teach science. And by the way, the fact that she's an elementary school teacher does not in any way suggest to me that she won't be teaching climate science um, at an elementary level. Yeah, I'm in complete agreement with both of you including the idea that the part that I trip over here is the safe space. That's the only thing that gives me pause. So 
much here for me lies in what exactly you guaranteed this individual and other students. You know, if I say to somebody, this is a, a safe space where you can talk about your religion, the assumption is that they can talk about their religion to me and I have almost a um, lawyer-client or therapist-patient relationship to them as a faculty member where it's not going to show up in their letters of recommendation, no matter what they say. Now, reading what you wrote you know, carefully, it sounds like what you said is that the safe space meant that you would still respect the individual as a person rather than respecting their views. Right? So as long as that nuance was transmitted then I'd completely agree with Antony that you can completely respect somebody as a person of faith uh, without uh, feeling like they can immunize their views from being challenged uh, on the grounds of that faith. But I guess what I would want to understand better is what exactly you said, what exactly they heard, and which poll of these two polls was closer. Did you create a safe space in the sense that uh, this, the safe space notion is often used, say, in the sexual assault context? Um, or did you create a safe space in saying you will be respected as an individual, uh, but your ideas have to be open for debate and contestation? My own view is that even if it was a safe space in the technical sense, um, you're not obliged to write a letter of recommendation for someone, even if you know something about them which you can't share. Uh, because you have an understanding, uh, a sort of privileged understanding of the information source, the relationship as a privilege of some sort. Um, If you can't share that information, but it's relevant, then you have to say, look, uh, you have to release, either you release me from, uh, either you permit me to say what I really think, or I can't write you a letter of recommendation. Um, And I don't think you can, as it were, write a letter of recommendation which leaves out something really important on the grounds that the way you learned that important thing was by way of, uh, of, a, of a privileged exchange, what you have to do is to go back to the person and say, look, I'm not going to use it against you, but I'm not go- I can't write you a letter of recommendation because I have obligations to the people I'm writing the letter of recommendation to as well. Well, it's also not, it doesn't seem to me it's about using something against her. It's not like you're outing her as a po- po- person with religious beliefs. And if that was how the student felt, the point is still that in a letter for somebody who's going to be a teacher, it's going to be important to say, I don't think she can teach this subject. And you don't, I mean, the idea that it does seem to me that this was, the, the use of this, the phrase safe space in quotes here was about being respectful and listening and engaging in thoughtful and difficult conversation. Um, which does not strike me as sort of a, taking on the position of the clergy or a lawyer. Um, But I think it's important to talk to the student, absolutely, not just ethical, but but necessary, to talk to the student and say, here are my concerns. How do you address them? Would you, now I have shared my concerns with you, do you still want me to write a letter? Or do you not want me to write a letter? And when you write the letter... I think it's important to be forthcoming. So the, the obligation then is to have one more difficult conversation. But also, yeah. uh, thinking, uh, thinking about this going forward, you might not want to offer this to the extent that you have offered a safe space. You might not want to offer that in the future. I never offer a safe space you know, with those quotes around it uh, to my students. I offer, I hope, uh, a respectful place for my students. But nobody should feel f- 
that they can go into the rough and tumble of intellectual debate and feel like they uh, will not emerge from that transformed in some way. Uh, so I think that I was Fair thinking enough. about this imaginatively as a as a pseudo lawyer to a former therapist, uh, speaking <laughs> to you now, Amy, um, what, what we would do in our respective professions. And I think that if something were given to us in this kind of, I mean, you tell me, if a, a patient had come to you uh, in the safe space of the therapist uh, patient or client relationship and given you uh, their tenderest uh, confidences under that rubric, I was trying to think that through and thinking whether you would violate that. And we both know that there are circumstances in which you would legally have to violate that, but they're obviously very extreme, like serious bodily harm or murdering somebody or something like that. Um, but the point there, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, is that you would never write a letter of recommendation for that person, period. Yes, happily writing letters of recommendations for your patients is not something that's required <laughs> of psychotherapists. And um, I think that's all to the good. And that's it for The Ethicist. If you'd like to send us your ethical quandary or comment on the show, you can reach us at ethicists at nytimes.com. If you'd like to leave a voicemail question for us to answer on the show, the number is 212-556-7070. If you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend and subscribe to us in iTunes. Our producer is Kerry Hillman, and the music is by the band Broke for Free. For Anthony Appiah and Kenji Yoshino, I'm Amy Bloom. We'll talk to you next week on The Ethicist.